Amen. Yes, you can be seated. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. I'm glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, Matt, I have an answer to your question. You ask, what do we call the coffee bar with no coffee? We call it sadness. That's what we call it. Um, I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes. We're starting in chapter 9, verse 13 today. We're going to try to make it all the way to the end of chapter 10. It's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, We're also celebrating the Lord's Supper together, as Matt's already told us which means I'm on a little bit of a time limit, and so I hope you'll find that in your Bible so we can jump in in just a moment. Before we jump in, I need to tell you about my friend John Campbell. I had the privilege of serving as one of John's pastors for about seven years, and John is just a sweet and remarkable man in my mind, and he's really been on my heart lately because on July 19th, uh, John lost his wife of almost 60 years. Uh, Marsha, she received her reward, she finished her race, she entered into glory, and that's great for her, Uh, but my heart has been heavy for my brother because, man, I just don't really know how you get out of bed in the morning when the person that you've been in bed next to for 60 years isn't there anymore. I just really don't know how you do that, and so I've been thinking about him and praying for him, especially because uh, the last few decades of John's life have been almost entirely devoted to caring for Marcia. See, Marcia, she was sick and frail, confined to a wheelchair for almost 20 years. And so for the last 20 years, John has really spent every moment of every day caring for Marcia and meeting all of her needs. Now, John is is kind of a frail dude himself. He's about five foot seven and 130 pounds soaking wet. And when I would talk to John on Sunday mornings after a church gathering, I noticed he would always apply the wheelchair brake on Marcia's wheelchair so that he could lean his own weight into it, like he had to hold himself up with a wheelchair, because he doesn't have a ton of strength himself. But still, man, that dude cared so faithfully and so well for his wife. And so if you think about a wife in a wheelchair, I mean, every time she needs to get into bed or out of bed, there was John lifting her out of bed into the chair or vice versa. Every time she needed to shower, John was there to shower her. Every time she needed to go to the bathroom, there was John to lift her out of the chair and onto the stool and back into the chair when she was done. And so just so much of John's life for the last 20 years really was centered around caring for his bride. And I just always thought that was awesome. John, his love for his Lord, you couldn't question it. His love for his church family was for real. But it was his love for his wife, Marcia, that just stood out and screamed at us because it was so clear and right in front of us. And and so I've just prayed for him as we've gone through the last few weeks, knowing how profoundly different his life is today than it was even just one month ago. But even as I've prayed for him, I've really, man, I've really wrestled with, with the thought that, like, when I'm, when I'm John Campbell's age, like, I hope I've lived a life that looks like the life that he's lived. Right? When I, when I am old, I hope and pray that you see from my life evidence of the same kind of devotion to my Lord that John has evidenced, the same kind of devotion to a church family that John has evidenced, but I hope and pray especially that you see the same kind of love and care for and devotion to my wife that John has just so clearly evidenced in his own life. In other words, I hope and pray that the direction of my life is pointed in a direction that matters, 
I hope and pray that the direction of my life is pointed in a direction that lasts, that's invested in things that are significant and not in things that are empty and worthless and broken. See, when the Bible talks about the direction of our lives, especially in the Old Testament, we've we've been walking through this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes this summer, and when the Bible talks about these things, it talks about the idea of wisdom or folly. And according to scripture, a life of wisdom is a life that's lived out of reverent fear for the Lord, a life that desires to honor him in everything that happens in that life. And a life of folly is a life that's invested in things that are vain and inconsequential, that don't have weight, and that don't last. And so I've thought about John Campbell, even as we've just walked through these last few chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, and have prayed that the Lord would lead me and that he'd lead all of us to live lives that matter, to live lives of wisdom. This passage that's before us this morning, it's a passage that sets in front of us a contrast, that contrast between wisdom and folly. And as that contrast is in front of us, we're invited to think about the question, what kind of life am I living? Am I spending my days wisely or foolishly? Am I pouring myself out for what matters most? Or am I wasting the few days the Lord has given me, chasing after the wind, chasing after things that don't, in the end, matter? I hope and pray that as we, as we walk through these verses, that the Lord will use this passage to invite each of us to ask those questions about our own lives. Let's pray, and we'll begin today. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, who has lived perfectly, who is himself perfect and true wisdom. We thank you for the fact that uh, despite our imperfection, despite our lack of wisdom, despite our many, many failures, you still call us yours through Jesus if we've responded to him and repentance and faith. In light of that true reality, Lord, we pray that you would move us to live wisely in the life that we've been given. Help us now as we turn to your word to have eyes that see and ears that hear and understand what that wisdom can and must look like in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we begin today, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13. Solomon, the preacher, he says this. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Solomon, he's about to explain to us one of the examples of wisdom that he's witnessed in the world, but he acknowledges this seemed great to me. It seemed like a big deal. It made a big impression on me. What is it? Well, it begins in verse 14. He says, there was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works around it. But there was found in it, in the city, a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Now, this is an illustration or a parable that Solomon's using, and we don't have a ton of details 
but we don't need a ton of details to understand the point that he's making. We imagine that there's this massive army coming against a small city. And this massive army, like its hordes just extend to the horizon all around the city. And this great king is building up great siege works. So like catapults and battering rams and things like that that are all around the city walls. And it seems to us that surely this city is about to fall. But there's this poor wise man, Solomon says. And so in modern terms, we think like an intern working in the mailroom. And his only job is to like, you know, take care of the little errands that the business executives need taken care of. And so he spends most of his time filling people's Starbucks orders. But he's wise. And so he has an idea, some idea we don't know, we don't need to know. But that idea saves the city. It delivers the city. And does the city respond by giving him accolades and handing him a key to the city and celebrating his wisdom? No. Solomon says the last sentence in verse 15, yet no one remembered that poor man. And so Solomon's point is that wisdom, while it is valuable, it's not valued. It's not appreciated. It's not remembered. People who walk in genuine wisdom, even if they save the city through that wisdom, they're not remembered. They're forgotten. That's what Solomon observes in his world. I wonder if you observe the same kind of things in ours. Maybe think about it this way. There was a time in life when in order to be famous, you had to be like a brilliant mathematician or scientist or something like that, right? I mean, like the Greeks and the Romans, they revered men like Aristotle and Cicero because of their intellects, because of their wisdom. There was a time in order to be famous, you had to be really brilliant. Today, in order to be famous, you have to be a Kardashian. Or you have to just be really good looking or to be really good with a ball in your hands, right? We don't value wisdom today. Wisdom's valuable, but it's not valued by our world. No, I mean, just look at the reality TV stars and the YouTube stars of our world. We don't recognize wisdom. We don't treasure wisdom. We treasure influence or power or cosmetics, but none of the things that really matter. And so Solomon, he's telling us, as he's urging us towards wisdom, he says, don't forget the fact that the world, it doesn't really value wisdom, but that doesn't mean that wisdom isn't valuable. And he proves that because he goes on to give us a series of better than statements. There are three of them, verse 16, 17, and 18. And in each one, he's just pointing out that wisdom is better than the alternatives. So verse 16, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. And so even though everybody forgets about him, his wisdom is still better than strength. Verse 17, he says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. My paraphrase of that. It's better to be in the company of wise whisperers than in the company of a foolish blowhard. You know what I mean by a blowhard? Somebody who shouts and yells and puts their folly on display for everyone. It's better to be in the company of a wise whisperer. And then verse 18, here's the third one. He says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but, and this is a significant but, one sinner destroys much good. One sinner destroys 
much good. So even though wisdom is better than strength, even though it's better than the weapons of war, it's fragile. And one sinner can destroy much good. In chapter 10, verse 1, Solomon gives us another parable or illustration to reinforce that point. He says, chapter 10, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now in the ancient world, the world that Solomon's writing in, I mean, it's worth acknowledging the fact that people stunk, right? Like nobody showered, um, people worked manual labor jobs, so they sweat all the time and you should bathe once every never, whether you needed to or not. Um, there's no like central air conditioning, so even if you're sitting in your home, you're hot and, and gross and sweaty. And on top of that, you know, like there, there are no public sewage systems, so like filth and excrement are just running through the city streets in the ancient world. People are walking around in it. And, and so people just, they smelled really bad all the time which meant that perfume was a really valuable commodity. But even at that, like it's a commodity that was only available to like the uber rich. Common folk, they just didn't bother with perfume because it was too expensive, too rare, and too valuable. That's the context that gives Solomon's illustration here a little bit of juice. He's inviting us to imagine that there's a perfumer, right? Somebody who like extracts oils from flowers or fruits or whatever it is that like produces perfume. He says, imagine this perfumer who's filling his jar with, with perfume and it's, it's super valuable, right? It's just precious perfume. Common folk, they'd never dream of being able to own it. Only a rich person could. And he's filling that jar and it's almost full. And, and just before he puts the stopper in it, this pesky little fly like flies in there and like dives into the oil, the perfume. But the perfumer, he doesn't notice it. And so that flies in there, he puts the stopper onto it. And then it's not until like two weeks later when like he opens up the jar and notices that that fly is swimming around in there, long dead now, of course. And not just dead, but but like rancid. And so the odor of that fly has entirely ruined this jar of precious perfume. Even though the fly is tiny and the oil is significant, that one little bit has ruined everything. So a little folly, Solomon says, outweighs wisdom and honor. He's making the point that wisdom it's fragile, and it can be undone, it can be ruined by just the tiniest hint of folly. Brothers and sisters, I hope you know that the very best things in life, I mean, they cost a fortune, and they take a lifetime to build. I'm talking about like a marriage that is healthy and thriving and that honors the Lord. I'm talking about deep, meaningful relationships between parents and children. I'm talking about a good name and reputation in business and in the world around you. Like these are things that are precious and they take a lifetime to build them. But they can be undone in a moment, in just a blink of an eye over something that is virtually worthless. I mean, your marriage can come crashing down over just the hint of infidelity. Your relationship with your children, they can be ruined over just one harshly spoken, ill-timed, unloving, overly critical word. 
your reputation in business, you know, the reputation of being somebody who's ethical and a person of integrity, that can be ruined by, by just one indiscretion in the marketplace. And so yes, wisdom is powerful, Solomon is saying. But he's saying it's very fragile. One little hint of folly can undo it or ruin it. Which means if we're to be wise people, if we're to live wisely in the world, in the life that the Lord has given us, we have to set our minds toward wisdom vigilantly. Right? We're not just going to stumble into a life of wisdom. We're not just going to accidentally sort of back into a life that's marked by godliness and virtue and integrity. Right? We have to apply ourselves to those things or they will never happen. Right? Nobody ever drifted into a life of godliness. Nobody ever just accidentally started demonstrating Christ-like character in their lives. I mean, there was never a dude who just rolled out of bed one morning, scarfed down his bowl of Rice Krispies, clicked on ESPN, and found himself robed in the righteousness of Jesus. There has never been the young mom who dropped her kids off from the carpool lane, went to her yoga class, was sitting in the drive-thru lane at Coco Java, and suddenly found herself marked by Christ-like character. And John Campbell did not wake up one morning and find himself giving his life to his wife, Marcia. Those things don't just happen. They're never accidents. They only happen when we apply ourselves toward and strives toward living wisely as the Lord has called us to. We have to recognize that because even just the hint of folly, even just the hint, can outweigh the wisdom and honor that we have built for ourselves and with our lives. So I pray, church, that you'll pursue a life that's marked by wisdom with deliberate and intentional purpose and conviction Because you know that a little folly that outweighs wisdom and honor. And so I pray that you won't let folly, even just the tiniest hint of it, undo the wisdom that Christ is cultivating in your heart and in your life. We just keep walking through this passage. What we start to see in verse 2 of chapter 10, really through the rest of the chapter, is that that Solomon, he's just contrasting wisdom and folly. And he's just showing us what wisdom looks like and what folly looks like. In verse two, he says this. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, I'll be honest and say that I'm, I'm shocked that the Republican Party hasn't grabbed hold of this verse and like plastered it all over their bumper sticker campaign, like in this part of the world, right? Like this, this should be the proof text for right-wing politics, but obviously that's not really what, what Solomon is talking about when he says this. In the ancient world, a man defended himself with his right hand. In battle, the right hand was your shield hand. And so your right hand became a symbol for protection. Solomon's saying that wisdom it protects you, right? A, a wise man's heart, it inclines him toward what is safe and what is protected. But a fool's heart, on the other hand, it leans to the left, to, toward recklessness, towards dangerous living. And he continues just to unpack that. In verse three, he says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. So you can see him coming from a mile away. And then when he gets there, he says to everyone that he is a fool, 
Solomon adds. So he opens his mouth and he removes all doubt that he lives a life of folly. Beginning in verse four through verse seven, Solomon teases out for us what it's like when fools become rulers. He says in verse four, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. So this is when your ruler is foolish. It says verse six, folly is set in many high places and the rich, I think that means the rich in wisdom, sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. That's another parable to say that when fools are rulers, the world is turned upside down. Skip ahead with me to verse 16 because he stays on the same theme. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Now, in the Old Testament, when the Lord wants to punish or judge a people, even his people, he does that consistently by raising up and installing over those people wicked rulers. That's a good way to punish a people, right? To give them a ruler who is a fool. To give them a ruler who is unrighteous because that foolish, unrighteous ruler, he becomes a curse on the people that he rules over. This is Solomon's point here. He says, woe to you, O land, when your king is immature and naive and gullible and childish. Or when your princes feast in the morning. In other words, they roll out of bed and expect that it's time for the party to start. They don't do their day's worth of work and then feast. No, they start feasting from the very beginning. This is what fools do. Woe to the land that's led by such people. But here's the contrast, verse 17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, meaning when he carries himself with decorum, when he sounds like and looks like and talks like and acts like a wise ruler. Happy are you, O land, when your princes feast at the proper time and when they feast for strength and not for drunkenness. In other words, they wait until their work is done and then they eat. And they eat so that they can work some more the next day. That's a blessed land or happy land when that land is led by wise rulers. Now I think we could apply this bit of Solomon's conversation a lot of different ways right now in 2020. But let's just think for a moment about what this should mean for us as a church. Right now, for a few more days, Life Church is in a season of inviting nominations for the office of elder. Our elders are the spiritual shepherds who set the spiritual direction for our church body and who help care spiritually for the people in our church family. And when God wants to bless a church, he gives that church wise elders. When he wants to discipline a church, he gives that church foolish elders. He still works the same way that he once worked. And so as, as people, man, we should be praying that the Lord would bring to the surface wise, godly men who will help shepherd our congregation. We, we should be praying that God will, will put in place people who can lead us towards health and maturity as a church. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter four that pastor, teachers, shepherds, they are gifts 
from Christ to his church for the purpose of that church growing up into maturity. And so when we think about the men who are gonna sit in the office of elder here at Life Church, we're thinking about our own spiritual maturity. We're thinking about our own progress towards growth in godliness. I mean, these are things that matter. They matter to us. And so wouldn't you pray that the Lord would make very clear to us the people that he is calling to serve in and lead in the office of elder here at Life Church. Wouldn't you be praying that the Lord would help us to identify the wise men that he has called for that purpose, that he's preparing for that purpose? And wouldn't you pray that the Lord would lead all of us toward maturity under their leadership? See, one thing that is true for every single person in this room, myself included, and man, I'd say myself most of all, Brothers and sisters, we are sheep and we need shepherding. We need people who can counsel us and encourage us and when necessary, rebuke us. We need elders. And so shouldn't we pray that the Lord would give us the men who will lead us towards growth and maturity in our own lives and then as a church as well. Solomon here, he's contrasting wise leaders and foolish leaders. That's just the theme of this chapter, this contrast, this contrast between wisdom and folly. In verses 12 through 15, he contrasts those who speak wisely and those who speak foolishly. We're not gonna talk about those verses today. We've talked about that topic very recently as we've walked through this book, and so I'll just leave you to wrestle with those verses yourself. I wanna pull at, at one more thread, though, that is here. That's the thread that we see in verses eight through 11. Let's start reading in verse eight. Solomon says, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So I want you to get your mind wrapped around what's going on here. What what is Solomon talking about? Well, he begins by talking about a dude who digs pits. Like this is his trade. He is a pit digger. Every day he gets out of bed and he puts on his pit digging clothes and he drinks his cup of coffee and he kisses his wife goodbye and then he goes off to dig a pit that day. He does that every day. He's done it for years, decades perhaps. But on this particular day, he digs a pit and he falls into it and he dies. Story's over. Or consider the next guy, still in verse eight. There's a dude who's in demolition. He breaks walls for a living, and that's what he does every day. He goes to the wall that he's supposed to break on that particular day, but on that particular day, he gets there, and he breaks a wall, and there's a serpent hiding inside that wall, and it jumps out, and it bites him, and he dies. Story's over. Verse nine, there's a dude who quarries stone, but one day as he's quarrying stone, he breaks a rock, and it bounces up, hits him in the face, and he's hurt by it story's over. Or there's a dude who splits logs, and one day as he's splitting logs, he's endangered by those logs somehow. Story's over. What's the point? We see the point in verses 10 and 11. Solomon says, if the iron is blunt, and he means the iron on the axe of the man who splits the logs, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength but wisdom helps one to succeed. And if the serpent bites before it is charmed, and here he's talking about the serpent that's hanging out in the wall that the dude is demolishing, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, 
there is no advantage to the charmer. So that sounds to me like the point must be sharpen your axe and charm your snake, right? Here's what's really here. Solomon's point is that every single day is a gift from God. Every single day is. And because every single day is a gift from God, your life, my life, they could be snuffed out at any moment without warning in the blink of an eye. We have no control over when our lives start. We have no control over when our lives end. And we can lose our lives in an instant doing the things that we do every single day. There's nothing that we can do to stop that. Now we walk through life with sort of the delusion of control. We try to, to maintain this fiction that we're in control of our lives, but, but that should be ridiculous to us. I mean, we know that people who, who run marathons and who eat kale, they still have heart attacks. We know that people who like do Pilates every day and have 4% body fat, they still get cancer, right? And so you can do everything that you can possibly do to keep yourself healthy and alive and still in the end die of some random disease. Wise people, they acknowledge this. They acknowledge that sometimes there's going to be a snake in the wall and it's going to bite you. Sometimes people who dig pits will fall into those pits and die And in the end, we don't have any say over that. But what we do have say over is living our days with wisdom. We can fear the Lord in the days that we have. We can use the gifts that God has given us in the days that we have. We can walk with wisdom in the days that we have. And that's the point of this passage. That's the question that it presses in upon us. When the Lord brings your number of days to an end on this earth, will you have lived wisely or will you have lived foolishly? When you're John Campbell's age, will the days of your life testify to a life of wisdom or to a life of folly? Will you have lived a life that's shaped by the fear of the Lord Or will you be marked by a foolish, vain pursuit under the sun? Will you live with wisdom or with folly? Now as we ask that question and wrestle with it ourselves, certainly I must point each of us to the wisest decision that any of us can make and in the process to the one who is himself perfect wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, for the word of the cross, that means the teaching of the cross of Jesus, it is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What Paul means is that the world is neatly divided into two and only two groups of people. There are those who think that the message of the cross is the power of God and there are those in the world who think that it is simply folly. And friends, I have to tell you that the world will always think that the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness. The idea of a perfect and wise and divine king who subjected himself to public torture and humiliation and shame and even to death all so that he might bear the penalty of the sins of people who were still in the process of rebelling against him even as he died for them, that idea will 
always be seen as folly by the world. Right? The notion that we as people were so sinful that the Son of God had to die in our place, that there was simply no other way, that we couldn't just improve ourselves or improve our society or work harder, that there was no hope for us apart from the cross of Christ. That idea will always be folly to the world. But to Christ's church, we will always know the cross is not folly. Paul, he goes on to say, he says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, we preach the message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so church, I hope you know that the wisest thing that any of us can do is to recognize that Jesus Christ alone is true and perfect wisdom. He is the divine righteous king who conquered folly through his cross. And to those who now bow before him in joyful submission and worship, he is not just a king, he is also a friend. He's not just a Lord, he's also a brother. He's not just a master, he's a shepherd who laid his life down for us so that we might truly live in him. Wisely living, it starts and ends with Jesus Christ. Will you choose him or will you choose folly? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and to the wisdom of your son upon his cross. And may those realities not be foolishness to us today. May they be true, beautiful wisdom to us today. And seeing them as wisdom, may we respond to them by striving to live wisely with all of the days that we have on this earth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.